passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. This uh, past year has been one of the most difficult years of my life, and the, probably the most frustrating thing about that is I can't pinpoint a cause. I don't know why it's been so frustrating for me, so difficult for me. See, some pastors, they're faced with stresses from a church that's unhealthy, but we have a good church. They love me, they love my wife, they love my family. Some people face difficulties in the home. I have a wonderful family. I have no idea how to pinpoint what the cause of all these struggles have been for the past year. I, I, I deal with stress. I, I deal with difficulties, but most likely not on a scale that's any different than most of you here. And, and in all likelihood, uh, some of you face more difficulty, more stress than I do on a weekly basis. All that said, last November, I found myself in counseling trying to figure out what had happened over the past year. What had led me to this point where I was in depression and facing so much, so much anxiety that I was nearly incapacitated. And I thought through it all, my faith had remained strong. Externally, my spiritual disciplines looked exactly the, th the same that they have for years. Continued to read, pray, lead my family in worship daily. And yet, if I'm going to be honest, God felt far. He felt distant. And over the last month or so, even though I probably never would have verbalized it this way, I realized that at some point, I don't know when, I can't pinpoint, and I don't know why, but at some point over the past year, I began to doubt God's love for me. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I know God loves me. I stand up here, uh, every single time I stand up here, I, I talk about God's love for us. I've never stopped believing that. Uh, I never stopped confessing that. And yet at some point, I think I began to, to cope with stress. I began to cope with the difficulty that was facing me, the, the pressure that was facing me by just kind of cutting off my heart from that truth. We do that, don't we? That's the way life often works. When we are hurt, when we face difficulty, when we face pain, when we face hardship, our impulse reaction is to protect ourselves. It's to protect our hearts, to cut off our hearts from feeling. We attempted to protect ourselves, our, our vulnerable selves, by cutting ourselves off from the world. And I think that's exactly what I was doing to try to protect myself from further pain and difficulty and hardship. It is, after all, human nature. It's something that we, we don't like to feel pain, and so we just uh, instinctively try to cut ourselves off from the pain. But at the same time, it's also something that our culture teaches us to do. We live in a very cynical age. We are taught, we are bred to believe that we should be disillusioned with others, that we should not trust others, that we should not depend upon others because they will let us down. 
the air of our culture that we breathe basically tells us to trust no one and to trust nothing, whether that is the government, whether that is one another, whether that is the church, or even whether that is God. Trust no one. Now, we may, be ta- we may not be taught to, to doubt God's existence, but we are taught to doubt his goodness. Is God really there? Our culture asks us, does God really care? When life becomes difficult, when life becomes stressful, we can begin to wonder if God really actually loves us. And this happens unconsciously at first. It's not something that we verbally confess and say, I don't think God loves me. In fact, if you were to uh, look at the last year of my life, the number of times that I have verbally, vocally said, I don't think God loves me, honestly, just a few minutes ago was the first time I'd ever said that out loud. But just because... I never vocalized it doesn't mean that that cynicism, that skepticism, that doubt hadn't crept into my heart. You see, our attitudes and our lack of joy can betray this sort of unconscious thinking, this skepticism about the goodness of God. And if we are not careful, if we don't catch it early enough, then there's going to be a point where this unconscious thinking becomes conscious thinking where we began to actually vocalize, instead of just subconsciously thinking, well, if God actually loved me, then dot, dot, dot. But we actually begin to vocalize it and say, God, where are you? Not just a one-time basis, but continually. God, where are you? Do you even care about me? Surely, if you loved me, you would intervene for me. And perhaps it's because I'm speaking from experience, but I am convinced that there are are few things that are more deadly to the church than this cynicism, this disillusionment, this skepticism that our culture teaches us. See, not only does it hijack our enjoyment of God, the joy that we have from being a Christian as it did for me the past year, if it's not caught, then it can actually lead to spiritual apathy And what we're going to see from the book of Malachi, it'll lead to cold, heartless, lifeless religion. The thing is, I don't think we're born this way. If you were to look at my children, they are naturally trusting. They don't have a cynical bone in their bodies. Now, they may question my goodness when I force them to eat certain foods, but they never actually doubt my love for them. It's the scars of life, it's the disappointments of of life that cause us to be skeptical, that cause us to be cynical in our lives. You see, we live in a cynical age, but it is not one that is unique to us. Believers throughout the ages have had to face the same feelings of disappointment, of heartbreak, of unrealized dreams. Christians throughout the ages have had to go through the the periods of silence, periods where they wonder where God is. And this morning, we're actually going to begin looking at a book that takes place in one of those periods. A group of people wonder where God is. They become disillusioned with God's love for them. They become skeptical of God's love for them. And as a result... After persistently being skeptical of God's love, their worship becomes lifeless. 
If you've read the book of Malachi before in the Old Testament, last book of the Old Testament, you are probably familiar that it is a relatively harsh book. It addresses hypocrisy among the people of Israel very, very bluntly. It talks a lot about lifeless worship, but the book doesn't start that way. First and foremost, what we see is that this book is written to an audience that is very cynical about God's love for them. They doubt whether God actually loves them. And maybe you find yourself in the same place this morning. Maybe you find yourself in a place where you doubt God actually loves you. Sure, he loved you enough to save you, but he doesn't actually love you right now. Maybe you doubt whether God actually cares about your life right now. It doesn't matter how many times you remind yourselves of the truths of Scripture. You have lost your joy. You've lost your hope that come from believing in God. And perhaps some of you have gone even further. You feel as though your worship is lifeless. It is just an act. You are just going through the motions. If you're being honest, you're not even sure why you're here this morning other than this is what you always do on Sundays. Wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, whether you are subconsciously beginning to doubt the love of God, whether you are actually professing that you doubt God's love, whether you find yourself enjoying God to the fullness, wherever you find yourself, I think the book of Malachi has a ton to say to us this morning. And so this morning, we're going to look at just the first five, uh, five verses of this book. We're going to look at the introduction. And as we look at these verses, I hope there's one overarching truth, this one theme that we can rest in today. We can rest in tomorrow, the rest of this week, the rest of this month, this year, and every single time we find ourselves walking through the valley of the shadow of death or when we find ourselves enjoying the sweetest, most beautiful fellowship with God. I hope we can remember this one truth. The key to vibrant worship and the key to joy in God is an unshakable confidence in God's love for me. The key to vibrant worship and the key to joy in God is an unshakable confidence that God loves me. When you find yourself in tough times, remember this truth, that God loves you. You see, anyone who has gone through tough times, whether it's job loss, whether it's health, health difficulties, relational turmoil, even just a, a season of stress, they can testify to the temptation to get doubt whether God actually loves us. This is the cynicism of our culture. It is a, at a, it's something that starts in the garden when the serpent questions God's goodness and says, does or did God really say? It is something that we all have to wrestle with. You see, what started in the garden all those years ago is true today, too. Now, hear me clearly. The serpent can never rob you of your salvation, but he can rob you of the joy of your salvation. He can rob you of the joy of your salvation. And so when you face hardship, when you face difficulty, when you face a, a dry season in your faith, he wants you to question God. He wants you to wonder where God is. He wants you to wonder whether God actually loves you. 
And the key to combating this lie is simple. And yet it's as deep and as glorious and also as mysterious as the ocean. The key to vibrant worship and joy in God is found in an unshakable confidence that God loves you. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to the book of Malachi. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 1 this morning. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. If you were with us last week, we looked at the book of Haggai. And I mentioned that Haggai, in one sense, kind of sets the scene for Malachi because it takes place right before the book of Malachi takes place. Remember, in the book of Haggai, we, we saw that, that the people of Israel had returned to the land. They had returned from exile around the year 538 B.C., uh, three years later, around 535 BC, they, they laid the, the foundations of the temple, but then they just sat and did nothing for 15 years. In the year 520, God spoke through Haggai and called them into action, and they completed the temple in the year 516 BC. Now, you might be wondering, where does Malachi fit in all of this? Well, Malachi takes place about a generation or two later, somewhere in the years 575 to 460, or excuse me, 475 to 460 BC. So a couple generations after the temple has been completed. If you're wondering, Ezra and Nehemiah come a couple years later. Ezra came in 465, Nehemiah came in, or excuse me, Ezra came in 455, Nehemiah around 445, just to place things in the context of Old Testament characters. Now, what took place in the generation or two between Haggai, when he's preaching in 520, and to get to where we are today in Malachi, this lifeless, dead religion? Well, the answer is actually found, or a clue to the answer is found in the second chapter of Haggai. Consider these words from Haggai chapter 2. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God says this through Haggai in the process of the building of the second temple. And God promises that this second temple will once again be filled with the glory of the Lord, just like Solomon's temple was filled centuries earlier. But even more than that, he says that this temple will be greater 
than it had been under Solomon. And so the people of Israel, they work with all their might and they accomplish the building of this temple in just four short years. They are confident that they will see the glory of God return just as he has promised through his prophet Haggai. They desire to see the kingdom of Israel return, to see the kingdom of God fully established on the earth. God said, in a little while. And so surely it will happen any day now. But year after year goes by. The temple is there, but the glory of the temple is a far cry of what it once was. The kingdom of Israel is not restored. In fact, Israel remains an insignificant piece of land ruled by a pagan king living thousands of miles away. Can you imagine why the people of Israel became disillusioned? Can you understand why they began to doubt God's goodness and God's love? God had promised them something, and yet they didn't see it happen. In a little while, God said, and yet nothing for generations. No wonder the goodness or the doubt of this goodness and love of God begins to creep in. God has promised that the kingdom would be restored, and yet the silent increases each and every year. Perhaps you can relate. Perhaps you find yourself in a place where you read the many promises of Scripture. You read promises of God's presence in your life. Promises of peace that surpasses understanding in your life. Promises of a, a spirit that is one of power, not of one of timidity. You see these promises and you feel as if they are met with silence. You lose your job or you lose your spouse to divorce. A loved one dies. A child leaves the faith. You watch your children deal with disappointment. You can't conquer hidden sins. You're passed over for a promotion. Your friends move away. Each month, you barely have enough money to get by, and all you want to do is to provide a normal life for your kids. And through it all, there is this ever-growing sense that if God really cared, if God really loved you, he would have saved your marriage. If God really cared, he would have spared your loved one's life, or he would have helped you make ends meet. And though you don't want to become cynical and skeptical, it happens. This is where the people of Israel were. The book of Malachi tells us where this cynicism leads, where this doubt, where this skepticism leads. The rest of the book tells us about the problems in Israel. They, they reveal to us that this disillusionment with God actually leads to false worship of God. They were corrupt priests. They were corrupt people. They were offering uh, uh, sacrifices that were corrupt. They were moral failings. They were flouting religious commands and more. True, genuine worship was missing in Israel because they had begun to doubt whether God actually cared about them. What a terrifying prospect. What a terrifying thought that this apathy is actually rooted in a lack of trust in God. 
this false worship is rooted in a belief that God doesn't actually care. This fake Christianity is rooted in the belief that God doesn't even care. And even more than that, a hidden resentment toward a God who doesn't care. Do you see how the two are connected? How this lack of trust in God's goodness actually leads us to fake, false worship. It leads to hypocrisy. And so Malachi begins his message to the people of Israel in a way that we might not expect. As he's writing to Israel, he doesn't just start by calling them out on their hypocrisy. He gets to that in a moment, but there's something more important to God and more important to Malachi in this book than just calling them to the carpet. Because God actually cares about the repentance. He actually cares about the root cause, not just by making them feel guilty. And so he starts with the heart of the issue, the reason or the place where their unbelief lies. And in verse 2, he says, I love you. Consider verse 2 again. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob. We're going to stop right there. As we read verses 2 through 5, we can begin to see that the snow-encapsulated Narnia begin to thaw. God starts by saying, I love you. But the cynic's heart is rarely won over by just such a simple statement. And so God begins to have a dialogue with the people of Israel for the people of Israel. And he asks the question of himself that everyone has on their mind, but no one is daring to say. And so God says, how have you loved us? God, we we know that you claim to love us, but come on. You promised your glory would return. Where is it? You promised the kingdom of Israel. Where is it? Why do we continue to be ruled by pagans? Where is your kingdom? Why is it that the wicked continue to prosper while we live here in poverty? While we live here insecure, seemingly without you, waiting for a day that we don't even think is ever going to come? How have you loved us? Can you imagine the audacity to actually vocalize that? That's why I I think that this wasn't an actual question that people were asking. They weren't actually asking God, how have you loved us? But God gets to their heart and asks a question that is at the root of all of their actions, something that they may not even be aware of themselves. You see, they didn't think that they didn't believe in God's love. But their actions, their worship showed otherwise. So Malachi cuts to the heart and says, you don't really believe that God loves you. You look at the evidence of your life, it shows that you don't actually believe it. Now before we continue and look at God's response to this question, let's just take a moment and consider what this passage is telling us. This first verse and a half, before we look at the proof positive of God's love 
for the Israelites and by extension God's love for us, the people of God. Let us, let's just heed the warning of these first few words. This first verse and a half remind us that doubting God's love for me leads to spiritual apathy. A persistent, consistent doubting of God's love will lead to spiritual apathy. So be aware or be on guard against the cynicism of Malachi's generation. Be on guard against the cynicism of our culture. Not only will it rob you of your joy, but it will turn your worship into worthlessness. Spiritual apathy, cold religion, starts with a persistent doubt of who God is and whether he loves us or not. I'm not talking about just a one-time thing. I'm not just talking about a season where, where you are in the midst of, of difficulty and pain and you say, God, where are you? The Psalms are filled with examples of that kind of questioning. I'm talking about weeks long, months long, years long, doubting whether God actually cares, whether God actually loves you. It's that that leads to spiritual apathy, to dead religion. We must be aware of the cause before we can find the cure. And so if the persistent doubting of God's love over long stretches of time is the cause of spiritual apathy, then the treatment or the cure is not just to put your heart into it, but it goes deeper. It is to fuse your bones with an unmovable, unrelenting, unshakable confidence that God loves you. Karl Barth is one of the most famous uh, theologians from the 1900s, and near the end of his life, he was asked, what is the most important theological truth that you have ever discovered? He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Consider again God's words to Israel's unspoken question. How have you loved us? Starting in verse 2 again. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever." Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So God asks this question, How have you loved us? And he answers Israel with a history lesson. He brings Israel back to the infancy of their nation, back to Genesis 25. Many of us are probably familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob and Esau were twin brothers who were born to Isaac and Rebekah. And before they were born, Genesis 25 tells us that before they had made any moral decisions, before their personalities began to show, while they're still two unborn children, God chooses Jacob to be the one who will carry the covenantal promise that he had made to Abraham to save all humanity, not Esau. Genesis 25, God chooses Jacob, not Esau. And now in the time of Malachi, God says, look at that moment when I chose Jacob and I didn't choose Esau. That right there is proof that I love you. 
And if you're like me, you say, huh? How? How does that prove that God loves the people of Israel? Well, let's consider God's argument here. Malachi makes it clear that God loves Jacob and he doesn't love Esau. And by extension, he loves Israel and doesn't love Edom. Edom uh, is the, the nation that descended from Esau. And according to Genesis 25, God reveals that love to Jacob by choosing him. Before Jacob could prove himself worthy or unworthy of God's love, and he wasn't worthy, if you are familiar with the character of Jacob, before he could show any morality or lack thereof, and he was pretty immoral, if you are familiar with Jacob, before he has shown himself to desire God or to not desire a relationship with God, and if we are familiar with Jacob, we know he wanted God's stuff. He didn't actually want God. God reveals his love to Jacob and for Jacob by choosing him. Jacob does nothing to earn God's favor. Jacob is a cheat. He's an idolater. He's a thief. He's a a terrible brother. He's an even worse father. He's sexually deviant. And God reveals his love to him by choosing him anyway. Fast forward back to Malachi's day and age. The people are corrupt. They have corrupt priests. Their worship is lifeless. They are morally lax. They are robbing God. And they say that God doesn't love them. And if we're honest, their actions reveal they don't really love God either. And God says, you don't think that I love you? Here's proof. I chose Jacob, the cheat, the idolater, the thief, And I choose to love you, the corrupt, the immoral, the cynical. God's love for Israel, and by extension, God's love for us today, is rooted in something that is far more secure than how good your worship is. God's love for you is rooted in something that is far more secure than your obedience in God. It is far more consistent than your love or your loveliness to God. If it were rooted in your obedience and how good you do at loving God in the moment, then we would find ourselves lost, blind, naked, and spiritually dead. It is instead rooted in God's freedom to choose in my case and in your case and in Israel's case, to choose to love the unlovable. And it's there that we can rest in God's love. Now you might be saying, no, how, how can I find comfort in that? Well, by remembering that you will never be more unlovely to God than when he first loved you. Romans 5.8 tells us this, but God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, I am sure he would not love me so long and then leave off loving me. If he had intended to be tired of me, he would have been tired of me long before now. If he had not loved me with a love as deep as hell and as unutterable as the grave, If he had not given his whole heart to me, I'm sure he would have turned from me long ago. He knew what I would be. 
and he has had long enough time to consider it. But I am his choice, and there is an end to it. And unworthy as I am, it is not mine to grumble, if but he is contented with me. And he is contented with me. He must be contented with me, for he has known me long enough to know my faults. He knew me before I knew myself. Yes, he knew me before I was myself. Jeremiah reminds us that God's love for Israel, and by extension, God's love for us, is irrespective of our shortcomings and failures. Jeremiah chapter 31, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. The implication of that passage is there is nothing that Israel can do to make me stop loving them. If God chose to love you at your unloveliest, then God will never stop loving you. And God chose to love us at our unloveliest. And he will never stop loving you. Now, before we continue, you may have a question about this word hate. After all, other places in the Bible tell us, like John chapter 3, verse 16, that God loves the whole world, and by implication, he loves Edom, he loves Esau, that he sends his only son. So what do we make here of Malachi's declaration that God hates Esau while he loves Israel? The language here is comparative. It's comparing the unique love that God has for his people against the rest of creation. The Bible does this elsewhere. It uses the language of love and hate as a form of comparison. So, for example, Genesis 29. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Jesus' words on discipleship in Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Genesis is not telling us that Leah was literally hated by Jacob. If she were, then Jacob would have just divorced her and left her all alone to die on her own. And we know from the rest of Genesis that he isn't above that. No, it's saying that his love for Rachel was so much greater than his love for Leah that God had compassion on Leah. In the same way, in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is saying this about hating our family members, he's not telling us to actually hate them. This is a form of hyperbole to remind us of the surpassing importance to love God above all other forms of relational attachment in our lives. Does God love all humanity? Yes. Scripture is clear that God has a benevolent concern for all of his creation. What's more, we see that God has a particular concern for the salvation of those who bear his image, which is all of humanity. And yet, at the exact same time, Scripture also recognizes and confesses that God has a special love for his people, that God loves them in a way that is greater and higher than those who are not his people. The love of God, first for Israel and now by extension for us in the church, is the love of a father for his children. 
It is the love of a husband for his bride. It is deeper and far greater than his love for others because they are his. Human experience bears this out. Anyone who has been married or who has had kids know that it is not controversial to say that you love everyone and yet you love your spouse or your kids more. What's more, the Old Testament gives us plenty of examples where the people who are on the outside of the covenant, the nations who are not a part of Israel, are allowed to join the covenant community of Israel. The New Testament reminds us that the people of God are made up of people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation on the face of the planet. It doesn't matter what race or their origin is. God's words here in Malachi are not words to individuals, I hate this person, but I love this person. But they are words to nations. I love my people, and I despise those who are opposed to them. God's love for his people is far greater than we can fathom. How have I loved you? If I loved you when you were at your most unloveliest, I won't stop loving you now. I chose to love you then. I know what I signed up for. I choose to love you now. So consider briefly just three ways from this passage that we can be confident in God's continued love for us. First, I can be confident of God's love for me by looking to his past faithfulness by looking to his past faithfulness. Malachi draws attention to God's unwavering love to an unworthy Jacob in the past as a sign and assurance for the people of Israel in his day that God continues to love them. Like the people of Israel, we have terrible memories. We are so quick to forget God's love in the past. And so if you find yourself skeptical of God's love, not not intellectually, but practically in your heart, then make an effort to remind yourself and to continually remind yourself of God's love in the past. Look to examples of your own past where God's love has been on display for you. But also look to examples of God's faithful love for his people throughout the ages to bolster your confidence in God's love for you. Consider God's unwavering, faithful love to the people of the Exodus. Consider God's unwavering, faithful love to the early church. Consider God's unwavering, faithful love to the people of the Great Awakening in the 1700s. And be confident that God loves you. Now you may be saying, well, how does God's love for people in the Exodus, or God's love in the early church, or God's love during the Great Awakening, how does that... Give me confidence that God loves me. Remember Malachi's words. There's nothing lovely about Jacob. Nothing lovely about Exodus generation. Nothing lovely about the early church. Nothing lovely about people throughout the ages. And yet God chose to love them anyway. And his faithfulness to his people throughout the ages is a reminder that God loves you and he will not stop loving you. Second, I can be confident 
of God's love for me by looking to his promises for the future. I can be confident of God's love for me by looking at his promises for the future. Perhaps you notice as we have been going through these verses that there's a lot here that we haven't mentioned. There's a lot about Edom and their rebuilding and yet God is against them. We didn't cover all that. When Jacob, or excuse me, when Judah was sent into exile in the year 586 BC by the people of Babylon, the people of Edom, their neighbors and their distant relatives actually rejoiced in their destruction. They participated in the looting of Judean villages, and they actually also began to occupy some of them. Edom didn't face uh, destruction at the same time Jerusalem did, but just a generation or two later, they began to face their own destruction. A nation of Arabs called the Nabataean Arabs began to slowly conquer the nation of Edom in the 500s BC. And this took place for 150 years from like 550 BC all the way up to 400 BC, they were persistently, slowly conquered by this other nation. History shows us that by the year 350 BC or so, they were completely conquered and completely wiped out from the face of the planet. But at the time of Malachi, about halfway through this time of them being conquered, they're half conquered. And so the people of Edom believe that they're going to make a comeback. Well, if Jerusalem did it, if, if Israel did it, and they're rebuilding their temple, we'll, we can do it too. We're going to return to our former glory someday. And just notice the parallels here to what God has promised the people of Israel and what Edom says they are going to accomplish in the future. Edom is confident that they would rebuild, that they would return to glory, and God says otherwise. And by saying so, he turns Israel's attention to the future. You see, in addition to having terrible memories, we also are extremely short-sighted. We forget that the Bible already tells us how things are going to end. The Bible reminds us of the unimaginable glory, the unimaginable beauty that awaits the people of God in that day. We are assured that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing to the glory that is set before us. We are told of a great, incredible, beautiful inheritance awaiting us. We are told that we will be kings and queens and that there will be justice that reigns on the earth. The Bible is filled with reminders. It's filled with assurance that God loves you now. And he will accomplish his purposes for you in the age to come. And so if you struggle with believing in God's love, having a confidence in God's love, look to the promises of Scripture for the future. And finally, I can be confident of God's love for me by looking to the cross. By looking to the cross. Malachi here never mentions the cross, but he does mention the covenant, the commitment that God made to the people of Israel. He says that that covenant, that commitment that I have made, it is an assurance that I will continue to love you. You see, today we have 
a new covenant. A covenant that is sealed with the blood of Jesus. And we can look to that covenant. That covenant that was made on the cross as the single greatest sign of God's unbelievable, unwavering, unrelenting love for us. The key to vibrant worship, the key to joy in God, is an unshakable confidence in God's love for me. So this morning, ask the question that, the, that God put before the people of Israel. How has God shown love to you? How has God shown love to you in the past? How has he promised to show love to you in the future? How has the cross show God's love to you? Malachi is a book that's intensely concerned with the heart of the worshiper that we would worship God in the right way. And because it's concerned with the heart of the worshiper, it starts by unearthing doubt, unearthing cynicism, unearthing skepticism in each and every one of us and lays it bare before God and his unbelievable love for us. You've probably not seen everything that you want from God. If I'm being honest, I haven't seen everything that I want from God. Prayers seemingly go unanswered. Hopes go unrealized. And yet I've seen enough. We have seen enough at the cross to never doubt his love. And that is, as Romans 5 tells us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. has given us new life, has adopted us into his family. The key to vibrant worship and the the key to joy in God is found in an unshakable confidence in God's love for each and every one of us. Let's pray. God, we... Confess that all too often, while we may profess that you love us, sometimes we don't feel that way. Forgive us, God. Help us to trust in your love, to cling to your love, to not have our faith or our confidence be blown about by our obedience which can waver or come strong by our heart of worship that can be steadfast or empty but instead cling to you and your love for us a love that will not waver that will not fade It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. 
Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.